Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today, we check in with Fidelity Director of Global Macro, Yurian Timmer, as he discusses what's moving the markets and provides his insights on what investors should keep top of mind. Yurian says the Fed has reached its limit to how far they could tighten their policy. He adds the Fed has probably raised rates for the last time at least for a while and could do with a pause. But even if they're done raising rates, it doesn't necessarily mean they will start cutting rates right away. Now it's just a matter of waiting to see what the repercussions are from a year of aggressive tightening policy. Urian also talks about earnings. He says no question that the first quarter of earnings season was a good one as we wait for a recession that refuses to arrive. Urian adds earning downgrades are less severe and there's been an overall uptrend for U.S. earnings. Urian also comments on where we are in the bull market, saying that the secular bull market is still alive and well and most likely in its twilight or final phase. As per usual, Yurian will be sharing his charts, so please head to at Timmer Fidelity on Twitter to follow along. This podcast was recorded on May 15th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Can we begin with um, one of the many head scratchers going on in the market right now? The the discussion of cuts, the fact that the market indeed is pricing in cuts later on this year, a couple of them actually. Um, and is it connected at all to thinking about what you were talking about last week? At some point down the road, is is the market guessing that the Federal Reserve may have less independence, therefore the government says, look, we can't afford to service debt at these levels. Let's bring those rates down a bit. I mean, why are cuts priced into the market otherwise? I've been been racking my brain on that for a number of months because the Fed has been pretty clear saying, you know, now they're saying, okay, we're going to kind of wait and see and, and have the data show us what to do. Uh, but the Fed has been pretty clear that the market was much more dovish than the Fed. I mean, that goes all the way back to last December's FOMC, and that even if the Fed is done for now, it doesn't mean they're going to start cutting. Um, so it's it's kind of a head scratcher because you know we, there's a lot of smart people in the market, and it makes you wonder like what what do all these PhDs know that that we don't know that that the Fed you know that and there's a sense that yes, yeah, see the economy is going to cave in from all of these rate hikes, and therefore the Fed the Fed is going to have to take away. The rate hikes and do rate cuts very soon. But so I think we can somewhat safely conclude that the Fed has probably raised rates for the last time, at least for a while. Um, and the Fed's now at five to five and a quarter. It was at zero, you know, more, a little bit more than a year ago. So that is a very serious tightening cycle. Uh, the average historical tightening cycle is around 500 basis points. So I think the Fed can kind of take some pause and say, okay, you know, we did a lot. Six months ago, when they were still at four, they could say, like, no matter what the data shows, we need to go to 
a certain restrictive level, but now they're there. And, and so I don't think the pressure is there to go from five to six because they need to allow the, the, all these moves to kind of you know work that way into the economy. And of course, we know the headlines in, with some of the banks. And so clearly rate hikes are having an impact on the banking system, or at least some parts of it. And if you look at the interest rate expense uh, in terms of the government's debt service, uh, I saw a quote somewhere that the government is now paying as much on uh, servicing the debt as it is on, on defense, right? So, so it's being felt there as well, and that's to your point about the independence. So maybe there is nothing more scientific going on than the market just assuming the Fed is done, which is probably a correct assumption, and then just sort of extrapolating from there what has happened in the past. And so maybe there's just nothing more sophisticated going on than that. Uh, but we do we see do see from this chart that very often when the Fed stops hiking rates, uh, the the next cut is actually not that far away. It's not always the case, but generally speaking, you know the pendulum never just kind of sits there at neutral, right? It's always swinging in one direction or the other, and so it has been swinging in the upward direction over the past you know year plus. And if the Fed is indeed uh, close to being done or done then history would tell you that maybe the first cut isn't that far away. But my sense is that the Fed will be on hold for a while, but levels are extremely high in this country and around the world, right? Canada is no, no exception. Uh, China, Japan, Eurozone, all, you know, the debt burden everywhere is very high. And the gray, the gray bars is the US, US debt to GDP, which actually has been improving in the last two years because the government isn't spending as much as it did during COVID and also because inflation is higher and, and the economy has rebounded, nominal GDP, which is the denominator in the debt to GDP ratio that we all look at, has actually improved quite a bit. And so the numbers are actually getting better, but from an extremely high level. But the point of the chart is I, I overlay real rates and the neutral rate, the R star, which is the gray line, and it shows you that if you use the tips market, which is not always correct by any means, uh, the Fed is properly restrictive at this point. You know, it's above our star, uh, nominals are above the expected inflation rate, and um, at, at a time when the debt burden is very high. So there is, I think, very clearly a limit to how high rates can go when, uh, when, when debt levels are high, and we see that in the banks, we see that in the government, I'm sure you're seeing signs of that in Canada as well. So I think it's fair to say that the Fed has reached its limits of how far it can tighten policy, and now it's just a matter of waiting to see what what the what basically what what the repercussions are of of a year plus of ag aggressive tightening policy. Do you remember a couple months ago, uh, you you would and lots of people also would talk about the discussion of goalposts being moved. Essentially, you know, oh, oh another one's coming. We gotta get, we gotta get ready for another uh, hike, and uh, gotta go further. Is this the same in reverse, possibly? It, it could be. I mean, so we got the inflation numbers and uh, there is continued continued improvement, right? And especially if you strip out uh, the rent part, the, the home ownership part from the CPI, and we always have to be careful, we can't exclude so many things that only the good stuff remains. So, and certainly rent inflation, housing inflation, and you, you know this better than anyone in Canada, um, has been a, a problem, but it, it's also very much a lagging indicator, right? If someone signs a lease, they're, they're in that lease for a year. So it's, it's gonna be the last thing that will improve. 
And so excluding that, the inflation data are starting to look much better. You know, we're now in a four handle for most of the inflation metrics, and we were at 9% a year ago. So the base effects, right, of the moves, you know, the, the inflation data that a year ago or, you know, 11 months ago were causing it to shoot up to 9%, those pieces, uh, those monthly series are now getting dropped out of that series. So the rate of change is going to start to, to, to get a lot better. And so, you know, we should be down to 4 or 3% by the end of the year. But then the question is, you know, how sticky will, will that be? You know, 3% is close to 2, but it's not 2. I think the Fed's target is probably 2.5 over a long average. Um, uh, because it, it's, it's stated as 2%, but that's using the PCE index, and the CPI tends to run a little warmer than that. But you know, the question you raised earlier, um, with debt levels so high and debt service costs now rising, and obviously we're in a politically very divided country here, uh, you know, the, the interest rate policy is bound to become more political in the years ahead. And, you know, we had talked about the, the World War II period, of course, and the Fed was not independent yet. Um, and I'm not suggesting the Fed is going to overtly lose its independence through a congressional act. I think that's extremely unlikely. But it can be kind of nuanced where it just gets needled left and right, you know, by politicians saying interest rates are, are, are too high, uh, because if rates are high, the debt service uh, costs will cannibalize other parts of the budget, which means the government then either has to run a, a large deficit for everything to get paid, or politicians will see their budgets for their pet projects being shrunk, and that's not going to go over well. So we talked about gold and, and, and Bitcoin, uh, why are they rallying? And I think there is a sense there that, you know, uh, maybe the Fed will not be, again, explicitly not independent, but that it's it's life you know it's life's going to be made more difficult uh, because now now the rubber meets the road of rates actually being at five percent and the and the government having to fund itself at you know three four five percent interest rates when the debt stock is 130 percent of GDP. Yeah, yeah, and it, it really is the same story around the world. It's an interesting ECB story. Maybe we'll get into that later. I wanted to ask you to sort of sum up for us the earnings season that we saw, which. It was pretty good, actually. I mean, it seemed to tick a lot of the boxes. Um, so there is no question that the first quarter earnings season uh, was a was a good one, right? And this is important because the Q4 numbers, <clears throat> the Q1 numbers, as well as the next quarter, have been quarters where you know when you look at kind of the the real bearish analysts, and I, I don't count myself among them. Uh, but the ones that are saying, you know, well, you ain't seen nothing yet, you know, the, the October low was only the, the first round um, of a multi-pronged bear market. So we're in that period of time where, you know, if, they, if that other shoe is going to drop, it really should start to drop now, right? Because profit margins have eroded um, and, and it, the shoe is not dropping, right? So a lot of people are waiting for this recession that refuses to arrive. And we were running on track for, let's say, a 10 to 15% earnings decline. And then in the last couple of months, that black line has leveled out. So there is stability now. And we see that also in the earnings revision data, which I, I don't have the chart, but the, the negative, so earnings downgrades are becoming less uh, severe, even though the actual earnings level is still coming down. So there are some gradual improvement in the kind of the second and third derivative of earnings. If we go to the next slide.
And that slide, earnings estimates, was tweeted by Urian on May 17th. You can see that a little bit as well. You see that the estimates have come way down for 23 and 24. But the overall uptrend, you know, I mean, that is a very solid long-term uptrend for U.S. earnings. Um, and so, so I'm not, you know, I'm not going to say that earnings have bottomed. Um, but what I can say is that if earnings estimates are generally correct, if that's true, um, and earnings do end up bottoming later this year and starting a recovery next year, then the path for the market actually going to new highs is is very clear. You know, we had this conversation three years ago after the lows, you know, the pandemic bottom, and the market came roaring back. Of course, it came roaring back because in part because the economy was reopening, but also because there was so much stimulus, right, fiscal and monetary, and we don't have that today. Uh, so it certainly wouldn't be as robust. But back then we were discussing how, you know, price leads earnings, uh, especially at inflection points, and that price often bottoms about two to three quarters before earnings. So the market is, correctly or incorrectly, saying that the earnings are going to bottom later this year and start to recover next year. And if that's the case, then the October bottom could have been the bottom and, and that we are in this phase where um, the market rallies on the basis of multiple <clears throat> expansion, as it often does at this phase. And so by that metric, you could see PEs expand 50% from the lows, which were 15 back in October. They're 18 and a half now. And so that would bring you to a 21 PE, and you multiply a 21 PE times 2024 earnings of about 240, and those numbers may be too high, but let's say 230, and then you, you get to new all-time highs. Um, so, so again, it's not my prediction that it will happen, but like the, the bears will say the, these bulls are like smoking something, like how can they possibly be, be, you know, be, be thinking this? But history will show you that if the estimates are generally correct, um, then the market has a very clear playbook here that would take us back to the old highs. Now, if there's this clearing event and the recession is coming, it's just not coming yet, and we do have that flush in earnings maybe in early 2024, then that's a different ballgame because at that point you really, you know, you have to take a leap of faith in terms of the timing difference. But, but that's kind of where we're at, I think. Some great questions coming in. Um, really short questions, which which really kind of go to the, not to the jugular, but they go to they go to the point. Um, will no cuts be bad for bonds? No, I, I don't think so. I think no cuts um, would keep the curve inverted, and might reduce growth estimates down the road, right? Because you know immediate cuts would basically. Immediate cuts would be exactly what the banking system needs, right? Like one way to make the banking problems go away is if the Fed cuts back to 2%. All the problems disappear, right? Because those bonds that they're sitting on the balance sheet uh, will go up in value. The bank deposits won't need to fight so hard to compete against money markets. And so the problems magically disappear. I, I don't think that's going to happen. So what will happen then in the interim if the Fed does not cut, some of those pressures will remain and it becomes like a, like a race against the clock, if you will. So if banks are losing some deposits because, not because the banks are failing, but because you know deposits are giving you half a percent and some banks give you nothing and money markets now give you 5%, uh, that deposit drain forces banks to then sell their assets to in, in order to preserve their capital ratios, right? And so if those assets are bonds that they bought three years ago at 2%, 
then they have to take losses on those bonds and then they, they get upside down. And that's kind of the story with the bank. So, so if the Fed does not cut, that pressure kind of continues to percolate. It may not lead into a crisis, but it, it'll be ongoing pressure that will keep the economy weak because those banks are not gonna lend new money if that's kind of the math that they're staring at. And so if you then get this credit crunch, you could get a recession, um, and that's generally good for bonds. So no cuts is good for bonds. The answer um, was much longer than the question. No, no, it's a great, well, there's a, it's a good question, good answer. Um, so the next one is, uh, yeah, this is interesting. So will commercial real estate woes help forestall further rate hikes? I mean, that, that also kind of implies that there will be further rate hikes. But what, what do you think there? Um, so I, I think the Fed has done... Um, I think the Fed, the big surprise, if there is one for the market, is not that the Fed is going to keep raising rates to 7%, because the headline inflation numbers are coming down, the tips break-evens are coming down, the economy is clearly cooling off, inflation is cooling off, you know, there's some uh, layoffs are being announced, jobless claims are rising, not, not to recession levels. So uh, there is really no point for the Fed to raise rates further than it already has. Like, like, I just don't see the rationale for that. But there is a rationale for the Fed not cutting rates as, as quickly as the market expects, because I could see the Fed saying, okay, you know, five, five and a quarter, that's good, that should get the job done. The data is moving in our favor, uh, but that's not the same as saying that now we can start cutting rates because they would only do that if, if there is a recession happening while inflation really is plummeting. Um, and, and neither of those two things are happening. So uh, so I think we're um, still away from that. Um, but commercial real estate and the banking you know, uh, pressures are clearly the, <clears throat> the two front lines for, for the economy. We know that the unemployment rate remains very low. Again, I was just traveling uh, all over the country and every plane is full. I mean, there's, there's a lot of activity. So there are really no signs of a recession. There are isolated pockets of weakness, like in tech, people are getting laid off in other services as well. I, I'm, I'm seeing more and more of my personal friends saying, I just lost my job. So it's happening, but it's not happening at that level. And so the commercial real estate and the banking uh, you know, uh, pressures will, I think, prevent help prevent the Fed from raising rates further. But my sense is that they would they would not have raised them anyway, because I think they can actually now really say, let's just sit here and see what we've done so far. Right. So interesting. Let's get into a bit of a discussion on where we are ultimately in the bull market that, that's been going on essentially since the great financial crisis. Um, what, where are we in that market? It's a great question and it's one I've been struggling with. So let's go to slide 18. And the next several slides Urian refers to include secular bull market analogies, the CAPE model, secular trends, inflation, and 1960s inflation analog, all tweeted on May 15th. You know, in, in, in my world of charting, <clears throat> there, uh, there was no such thing as a, as, as a definite um, uh, um, consensus, right? So. Uh, we have periods of secular bull markets and secular bear markets, which sounds fancy, but these are prolonged periods spanning several decades of either above average returns or below average returns. So if you take the overall market trend over the past 150 years, the average return is about 10, 11%. The average real return is about six, 
But in those period, in that very long um, uh, history, you have periods like the 80s and 90s, the 50s and 60s, the 20s, <clears throat> that produced very, very strong uh, secular bull markets. So super cycles. And I think since 09, since the financial crisis, I think we've been in, in one. And secular bull markets produce a, a, a CAGR, a compound annual growth rate of about you know, 18% or so. And that's what indeed happened um, in this cycle uh, until, uh, until the COVID cycle started. So the question is, where are we? Um, you can see that the gray line, both in the top and the bottom panel, continue to track pretty well with the secular bull markets. But if we go to slide 21, we can see that if we use what we call the CAPE model, so the CAPE uh, ratio is the cyclically adjusted PE ratio. That's a, a something invented by Robert Schiller, the economist. It takes a 10-year earnings instead of a one-year earnings and calculates a PE. And what we know is that the 10-year trailing CAPE ratio has a very high correlation with the forward 10-year uh, compound annual return. And that kind of makes sense because PEs are mean reverting, right? They mean revert around 15 and they go you know, to seven or they go to 30, uh, but they mean revert and therefore the forward return mean reverts around that. Because if you think about it, if you're starting to invest when PEs are 40, you have a really high hurdle because you're paying so much in advance for those future earnings. And the opposite is true if you're buying the market when the PE is at seven. So anyway, the gray line is, um, is the 10-year uh, rate of change for the S&P. It peaked at 16%. It is now at 12%. And the yellow and, and pink line show two different kinds of, uh, kinds of projections. And you see that there's a pretty good fit. So the idea is that the secular bull market, I think, is still alive, but it's in its twilight. So we're getting to that phase where we'll still make new highs, but they're going to make there'll be more nominal highs than real highs, and the and the slope will not be quite as as steep. And then the the ten year rate of change will start to kind of moderate more towards the the the, the, the single digits. And if we go go back to slide um, 19, actually, if we overlay the inflation backdrop and the, the stocks to bonds correlation, which are the gray bars, and you see the market on top, oh, and, yeah. I've, and, I've, and I've overlaid those, those secular bull markets, we're, we, we, look, we seem to be at a point kind of where we were in the late 60s. And if we go forward one slide and we analog the, the mid to late 60s, um, and we index it to the five-year inflation rate, you know, it, there's similarities, right? I mean, you always have to be uh, wary of analogs because they work until they don't. But but it but the the 60s analog kind of shows an interesting maturation of the super cycle where back then it it was the twilight of that cycle. The market still made new highs, but it was more inflation than growth, and the and the slope. You see those two straight lines started to flatten out. So that my guess is that we're in the twilight of the secular bull market. Fascinating. Let's see if we can get these two questions in um, before before everyone has to go. Um, great couple of questions. So one is, if the Fed does cut historically, does that mean that they'll cut again quite quickly? And the other question is about currency. The discussion of the BRICS currency, again, is it a sideshow? Does it affect the U.S. dollar meaningfully? Your comments. The, the scenario we described earlier about maybe the Fed becoming slightly less independent um, that would be a dollar weakness story. It would because in that situation, 
um, real rates would be somewhat suppressed. They, they may not be negative, but they may not be as positive as they would be. And that favors gold. And if you know Bitcoin is gold's um, high octane cousin, then you know it would favor um, Bitcoin. But a weaker dollar would be very, very much part of that story. And if you get a weaker dollar, you get stronger what we call commodity currency, right? So Brazil, Australia, New Zealand, you know, Canada kind of sometimes gets lumped into there as well, although I think there's a lot more going on with Canada. But but that gets you into the, the BRIC currencies. And, and part of that story is also the fact that the earnings cycle is more fragmented now than it has been because, you know, back in uh, going back to the, the, the pandemic lockdowns, you know, the U.S. was kind of the first one to reopen. Then kind of Europe came next. And then uh, China only started to reopen just a few months ago. And so you see that the global earnings cycle is not quite as uniform as it has been in the past. And so we actually see now positive relative earnings growth of Europe and emerging markets relative to the U.S., and that should should boost um, you know the, the, those international areas. And if you on top of that have a weaker dollar, uh, then you get gains um, from from currency trans translation. But again, you see Latin America is is way up there, right? So that that feeds right into the commodity currencies and 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 the BRIC currencies basically, as well as China, which is leading leading the growth there. And maybe just uh, almost a one word answer on does one cut mean another cut historically? Usually once the Fed gets going, it, it keeps going. Yeah. So uh, when you look at the long term cycle, it goes in these multi year waves, you know, 500, 600 basis points in one direction. I mean, the Fed could tweak something like in 94 Greenspan gave back a few of the rate hikes because mission was accomplished. Uh, but generally speaking, once it goes, it's a full cycle. Yuri and Timmer, fabulous to have your thoughts to start out the week and, and put some of the pieces together for us on this puzzle. Thank you and enjoy your week. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.